Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 7, 1 Kings chapters 3 and 4. We concluded last week as Solomon was in Gibeon having laid himself down to sleep after a most awesome and satisfying day when he dreamed a dream that turned out to be a visitation by God. The leaders of Israel had assembled to cheer and validate Shlomo's coronation as king of Israel at the remnants of Moses' old tent sanctuary on a high place at perhaps the only generally agreed to place of communal worship and sacrifice in the entire land. Well, now they were gone. They were headed back to their 12 tribal districts and as Solomon watched them depart in this heady celebration complete with fabulous numbers of priestly sacrifices and inspiring benedictions all designed to beseech Jehovah on behalf of Israel's new leader. All this was but a memory now. He must have been pondering what lay before him tomorrow. Shlomo was a young man, about 20 years, quite serious, dedicated to his position and responsibility before the Lord. His heart was certainly in the right place as his mind had to wonder how could he possibly govern such a disparate group of people who since the days of Joshua had divided themselves up into factions and coalitions. And in addition... David's conquests of foreign nations hadn't yet been consolidated. And at the moment, King Solomon's means to deal with these domestic and international matters of utmost importance were quite limited. You know, there's something pretty wonderful about youthful leadership because its idealism and, and its enthusiasm to do right haven't yet been tainted by the grind and the weight of the never-ending demands of those who must be led, but invariably resisted, nor by the ever-growing number of scars caused by failures and unintended consequences, and even by others who believe they could lead better. Solomon's heart is still tender, it's without calluses, and thus not only open, but yearning for God's leading. Thus in 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 5 the Lord comes to Shlomo in a night vision and he asks him a short but profound question the answering of which will shape the remainder of the king's life in a mere seven words Jehovah asks Solomon the question that is inherently asked of all who come to trust him tell me what I should give you Solomon follows a protocol of response that's really a prayer. And the prayer begins with thanksgiving, it flows into confession, it ends with a petition for God's help. And Solomon's answer expressed a singleness of spiritual desire. He wanted to be given the ability to judge God's people according to God's justice system. He wanted to be able to discern good from bad, tov from raw. Because this is at the heart of administering godly justice. I suspect that Solomon had witnessed his father in the final years of his reign. Let justice sort of administer itself. And the people suffered greatly from it. 
Recall that one of the chief stated reasons for Absalom's popular rebellion against his father was that not only had David generally quit hearing legal cases himself, but he was even derelict in appointing others to do so in his stead. Now Solomon must have concluded that being a good shepherd over God's kingdom was going to have to begin with administering righteous justice. And so that was at the heart of his request. Now in some ways, his petition was as pragmatic as it was spiritually appropriate. We may not realize it, but each of us who claim Christ as Lord have already been asked that same question. I wonder how each of us have answered it. Solomon gave an answer commensurate with his position, with his anointing, with his responsibilities. It was a practical reply. Yet it was practical in the context of asking for the ability to carry out the divine assignment given to him by God. And I think that this, in combination with the illustration of a prayer model, that consists of thanksgiving, confession, and petition is something that we're meant to take deep inside of us and and to follow it faithfully. My point is, we're not all born to be kings or judges. So it's also not necessary that we ask God for the gift of knowing how to administer justice. The Lord has created us each with a unique purpose. He has given us each assignments in our lives. And when that assignment becomes clear, then we need to ask Him how to carry it out and for the spiritual gifts to be able to do it. Those purposes and assignments are as many as there are people. So I would not pretend to begin to list with what to pray for as pertains to each of these purposes. But what I can tell you with confidence is that petitioning the Lord to show you how to accumulate personal monetary wealth does not belong on that list. It's with the greatest sadness that I see far too many pastors preaching the popular and aptly named prosperity doctrine that asks you to do just that. They say that when the Lord asks you, tell me what I may give you, you need to answer, money! And lots of it. And if there's such a thing as the wrong answer to that question, surely this is it. Well, let's see what the Lord's response to Solomon's request for wisdom to administer righteous justice amounts to. Open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3, and we're going to read from verses 10 through 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 370. Again, that's 1 Kings 3. We're going to read from 10 through 15. What Shlomo had said in making this request pleased Adonai. God said to him, Because you have made this request, instead of asking long life or riches for yourself, or for your enemy's death, but rather ask for yourself understanding to discern justice, I am doing what you requested. I am giving you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you, nor will there ever be uh, again anyone like you. I am also giving you what you didn't ask for, 
riches and honor greater than that of any other king throughout your life. More than that, if you will live according to my ways, obeying my laws and mitzvot commands, like your father David, I will give you a long life. Shlomo awoke. He found it had been a dream, but he went up to Jerusalem, stood before the ark for the covenant of Adonai, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings. He also made a feast for all of his servants. <coughs> Now, verse 10 makes it clear just how this kind of request that's based upon God's will and is practical for this situation is viewed by Yehovah. What Shlomo said in making this request pleased Adonai. And then, as so often happens as we deal with God, he extends the higher wisdom that Solomon asked for even to the lesser concerns of his life. And so the Lord gives to Shlomo the promises of a long life and of abundance. And it's fascinating to me the way the Bible has the Lord responding by saying, because you made this particular request, instead of asking for long life or riches, then I'm going to give it all to you. In other words, the result of asking God for the ability to carry out what it is He has divinely created you for is that the other things of life that most of us need or would like to have will be given as well. Now, as we've so often discussed in Torah class, the Old Testament is the foundation for the New. The Tanakh sets the context for not only the events, but also the meaning of terms used in the New Testament. Here we see that the key to Solomon's request is that he asks for this gift of judicial wisdom, not for the benefit of himself, but rather for the benefit of those who the Lord has asked him to shepherd on the Lord's behalf. Now we can more fully understand the meaning of that well-known and oft-spoken Christian principle from Matthew 6.33. But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And just so you don't think that this statement's being used out of context, so that I could prove my point to you, here is what Messiah says in the verses leading up to this marvelous truth. I'm going to read to you Matthew 6, 24 through 32 and then add in 33 at the end again. No one can be a slave to two masters for he will either hate the first and love the second or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. Therefore I tell you don't worry about your life what you will eat or drink, or about your body, or what you will wear. Isn't life more than food? The body more than clothing? Look at the birds flying about. They neither plant nor harvest, nor do they gather food into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? Why be anxious about clothing? Think about the fields of wild irises and how they grow. They neither work nor spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Shlomo, Solomon, 
in all his glory was clothed as beautifully as one of these. If this is how God clothes grass in the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, thrown into an oven, won't he much more clothe you? Oh, how little trust you have. So don't be anxious asking what will we eat, what will we drink, how will we, will we be clothed. For it is the pagans who set their hearts on all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. And then ends with, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You see, verse 33, Seek ye first his kingdom, is the concluding thought of our Messiah who begins the subject in verse 24 with, No one can be a slave to two masters. You know, what's even more interesting is that Yeshua continues in verse 25 with, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. In Kings, 1 Kings 3, God told Solomon that because he chose to be a slave to God instead of to money, he was going to add money and life. Jesus exactly paralleled, essentially merely repeating it even more eloquently. He paralleled what God told Solomon so long ago. Notice that this does not mean that the idea of being a slave to God is merely to become a believer. See, walking an aisle and being saved is not the same thing as becoming a slave to God. And that is because this entire God principle is based on a person already being a believer. It is the believer, not a pagan, who must decide to choose being a slave to God or to money. Because this is not a message to non-believers. However, to all of this awesome promise of God to Shlomo, there was a catch. Verse 14 says that if you live in my ways, I will give you long life. In other words, the promise of long life was conditional on Solomon being Torah obedient because living in my ways is immediately defined as obeying my laws and commandments. And where else do we find God's laws and commandments but in his written word, especially in the Torah? Living in my ways means obeying God's laws and commandments. Now resuming in 1 Kings chapter 3 at verse 15. <clears throat> Take a look there. Solomon awakens. He remembers his dream, his vision. He returns to Jerusalem and immediately stands before the Ark of the Covenant. That is that makeshift tent that David had put in there many years earlier and he offers more sacrifices at the altar in front of it. Now before we move on to the next segment of this chapter I'd like to take a moment to point out something that I think you'll find interesting. Look again at verse 13. Look at verse 13. There it says I am also giving you what you didn't ask for riches and honor greater than that of any other king throughout your life. The key phrase is throughout your life. Now the Greek Septuagint and many though not all 
of its offshoots left that last phrase out for some reason. The meaning of that statement when it's included is that during Solomon's lifetime, which means his reign over Israel, he will be the wisest, richest king in existence. Now what's happened as a result of those texts that have removed that ending phrase is that we've adopted a saying that King Solomon was the wisest and wealthiest king of all time. And the Bible doesn't say that, and it's doubtful that he was. Well, now that God has given Solomon this gift of superior judicial wisdom, we get a story that proves that he's indeed received it. And he is now putting it to practical use by solving an unsolvable dilemma. Turn your Bibles to uh, 1 Kings 3, verse 16. 1 Kings 3, verse 16, page 371. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Now, what's usually forgotten in this memorable story that most Christians have heard a number of times is that these two Isha were Zona. I'll explain that in a moment. After this, there came to the king two women who were prostitutes. After presenting themselves to him, one of the women said, My Lord, I and this woman live in the same house, and when she was in the house, I gave birth to a baby. Three days after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. We were there together. There was no one else with us in this house except the two of us, and during the night this woman's child died because she rolled over on top of it. So she got up in the middle of the night, took my son from next to me while your servant was sleeping, and put it in her arms, and she laid her dead child in my arms. And when I awoke in the morning to feed my child from my breast, there it was dead. But when I took a closer look later in the morning, why, it wasn't my son at all, not the one I gave birth to. Now the other woman broke in, No! The living one is my son, the dead one is your son. And the first one said, No! The dead one is your son, the living one is my son. And this is how they spoke in the presence of the king. And then the king said, Well, this woman says, The living one is my son, your son is the dead one. The other one says, No, the dead one is your son, the living one is my son. Bring me a sword, said the king. They brought a sword to the king. And the king said, cut the living child in two. Give half to one, half to the other. And at this, the woman to whom the living child belonged addressed the king because she felt so strongly towards her son. Oh, my Lord, give her the living child. You mustn't kill it. But the other one said, it will be neither yours nor mine. Divide it up. And the king answered, give the living child to the first woman. Don't kill it because... She is the mother. All Israel heard of this decision of the king that he had made and held the king in awe, for they saw that God's wisdom was in him, enabling him to render justice properly. We were talking about the two Eshah were Zonah. That is, these two women were prostitutes who had undoubtedly become pregnant through encounters with their customers. Now, we are given the information that both women lived in the same house as single women. The house 
may have been a tavern or an inn, because in that era it was common that an inn was where prostitution took place. In fact, there is the greatest of literary evidence that the female innkeeper was also often the establishment's prostitute. Now this story is not at all complicated, so we're not going to spend too long with it. The idea is that both of these prostitutes gave birth at approximately the same time. One of the women had her baby in bed with her and then she accidentally rolled over upon it and suffocated it. She then walked over to the other woman who was also sleeping with her infant, carefully removed that child from her arms, replacing it with the dead baby. Then she walked back to her own bed with the living child belonging to the other woman. Now the one whose baby had not died awoke to find this little lifeless body in her arms. But upon closer inspection, realized this wasn't her baby at all. It belonged to the other woman, who was now claiming the live infant as hers. Now, let me point out something here. On the surface, especially to us men or to younger unmarried folks, this kind of story may sound a little far-fetched. Now, even though infrequent, we'll occasionally hear on the news of some mother whose infant has died, who then goes to the hospital and steals a baby from the nursery to replace the one she's lost. Now, I can't understand such a thing, but I do know that women usually have such strong mother instincts upon giving birth that when they experience this kind of tragic loss, They react in ways that are hard to explain, and sometimes that reaction includes kidnapping some other unfortunate mother's newborn and then making it as her own. That's essentially what's happening here. And no doubt, this isn't the only case of it that was happening in Israel. Well, these two women get into a shouting match before King Solomon, each telling essentially the same story, and the problem is compounded in that there are no witnesses since they are prostitutes. They've been shunned, abandoned by their families. Now, King Solomon sees only one way to to resolve this matter, and that is to do something dramatic enough that hopefully it will reveal the living infant's true mother. So he orders that the baby and a sword be brought to him and he's going to divide the baby and give each woman a half. Now obviously the baby will not survive such a thing. So as Solomon raises the sword and one woman bitterly says to get on with it because it would be most fair that both women lost their babies to death. But the other woman pleads with Solomon to stay his hand. She agrees to give up her claim on the child to give it to the other woman just so it would not die. Solomon's conclusion is that the true mother would not want to see her baby die just so that both sides can equally lose. Rather, the true mother loves her child so much she'd rather see it living in the arms of another than to die in her own. Case solved. We need to understand the uniquely oriental mindset at work here. First of all, 
it was usual and customary that in a case where the ordinary judges couldn't decide, the matter was to be brought to the king, who was God's representative, was regarded as able to make just decisions where others could not. Second, because trading and bartering was the mode of exchange in that era, the most clever person was usually the richer because they generally got the best of their trading partner. So, especially in matters that seem to be of the Rubik's Cube variety, when someone could outwit the other parties, the clever person was viewed with the greatest admiration. For Orientals, it's the wisdom and the cunning of everyday life that impresses, as is the living out of their valued folk proverbs. Thus, in verse 28, that concludes this section, we read, All Israel heard of the decision the king had made, and held the king in awe, for they saw that God's wisdom was in him, enabling him to render justice properly. Let's move on to chapter 4. Open your Bibles again to 1 Kings chapter 4, page 371, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. King Shlomo was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Sadok the Kohen. Elichoref and Achiah, the sons of Shisha, secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Achilud, secretary of state. Baniah, the son of Jehoiada, commander of the army. Sadok and Evyatar Kohanim, high priests. Azariah, the son of Natan, Nathan, chief administrator. Zavud, the son of Natan, the king's trusted counselor. Ahishar, in charge of the palace. Adino Ram, the son of Avda, in charge of forced labor. Now Shlomo had twelve officers over all Israel, who were in charge of providing food and supplies for the king and his household. Each one was in charge of provisions for one month out of the year. They were the son of Hur in the hills of Ephraim, the son of Deker in Makatz, Shah Albim, Beit Shemesh, Elon Beit Hanan, the son of Hesed in Arubot, he also had charge of Soko and all the territory of Hever, the son of Avinadav, in all the area of Dor, he had Tafat, the daughter of Shlomo as his wife, Ba'ana, the son of Achilud, and Ta'anak, Megiddo, and all of Beit Shan by Zartan below Yisrael, from Beit Shan to Avel Machola, as far as beyond Yochmeam. The son of Gever in Ramot Gilead, he was charge of the village, in charge of the villages of Yair, the son of Manesha in Gilead, in and in charge of the region of Argov in Bashan, 60 large cities with walls and bronze bars. Achinadab, the son of Edo in Machanaim. Achimaatz in Naphtali. He also took Basmath, daughter of Shlomo, as his wife. Ba'ana, the son of Hushai, in Asher and in Alot. Jehoshaphat, the son of 
Paruach in Yisachar, Shimei the son of Elah in Benjamin, and Gever the son of Uri in the land of Gilead, the country of Sichon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. And over all these there was one administrator in the land. Judah and Israel were as numerous as sand grains on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and enjoyed themselves. This listing of the key officials in King Shlomo's administration is very similar to the one we saw way back in 2 Samuel chapter 8 that listed David's top officials. See, it's constituted based on the makeup of his royal court from sometime around the middle of his reign. Now, we know this because two of the officers mentioned had Solomon's daughters as their wives which means that they were at least 15 years old. Now, since Solomon was about 20 when he was coronated, it obviously cannot be that he fathered children when he was five or six years old. In verse 1, the first words are that King Solomon was king over Kol Yisrael, all Israel. This is no throwaway phrase. It's making clear that Solomon was the single undisputed ruler over all 12 tribes, all 12 tribal territories. There had not been a ruler who could claim that before David, although in in a certain sense Joshua might be seen as ruling over all 12 tribes. But for David, it was an off-again-on-again situation during his reign. There were not only northern and southern tribal coalitions that never wanted much to do with one another, that those two we become familiar with, but also there was the Transjordanian one that consisted of the two and a half tribes of Israel that lived on the east side of the Jordan River, outside of the Promised Land. See, these coalitions and their various alliances were in constant flux, and at times the situation was very chaotic. However, at the end of David's reign, after at least two rebellions had been put down and the many murders of rival leaders, Solomon inherited a comparatively stable political situation. He, his dismissal of one of the two high priests and his executions of David's former military commander Joab and one of the more infamous troubleful mentors in the land, Shimei, and of Solomon's half-brother, Adonijah, who had the support of many in Israel, all of this stabilized matters further. Solomon recognized that now the next step was to create wealth as a means to further stabilize his country. Well, we're going to look briefly at this first list uh, that we're given in verses 2 through 6. Now the first name given is Azariah. He is said to be the son of Zadok. Now the verse ends with the words, the priest, which tends to make the meaning of those words quite difficult. See, here's the thing. There are several possible interpretations of what the sense of this is. But in the end, it really comes down to two main possibilities. Either the term, the priest, is referring to Zadok, or it's referring to Azariah. If it's referring to Zadok, then Azariah is given no title or duties. 
if it's referring to Azariah, then it makes him the priest. The bottom line is, the Hebrew word for priest, which is Kohen, occasionally carries a different meaning than priest. In fact, if we move on down to verse 5, move down and take a look at verse 5. If we move down to verse 5, where we're introduced to Zavud, son of Nathan, Nathan, the Hebrew word describing his position is also Kohen. But even the rabbis agree, for the most part, that this cannot mean priest in the classic sense of the word. Rather, in rare cases in the Bible, the word Kohen means something more like principal officer or chief counsel. Now, even though Azariah, as the son of the high priest Zadok, could be called a priest because of his genealogy, that's not the meaning here. Rather, as the first name mentioned at the top of this list, he was the principal officer in Solomon's administration. In modern terms, we might call him the prime minister who represents the king to the people. The point's this. If we look at David's list of valiant men, his royal court, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, first on his list, as the most important man in his government after himself, was his military commander. In David's day, the second in command over all Israel was the head of the military. But in Solomon's reign, the second in command was a civilian politician, son of the high priest. See, what we need to see is that the entire character of Solomon's reign has evolved. It's worlds apart from his father David's. David's was a military government with Israel on a constant war footing. And the warring wasn't only with outside foreign forces, but it was from within. And what can only be described as civil war and upheaval And Solomon, however, would be able to live up to his name, peace. He was not a warrior leader, but rather he was a civil leader and a diplomat. Now, we'll look at verse 3 for a moment, because two men are there described as scribes, although our complete Jewish Bible calls them secretaries. Eli Koref and Achiah are called in Hebrew, Kafor. Now, I want to discuss this because I'm regularly asked what a scribe is in the Bible. Now, there are three words used in the Bible that seem to refer to this, this same office of scribe. Kafor, kafer, and sofar. Now, interestingly, kafor is Hebrew, kafer is Aramaic, and there's a lot of disagreement over the origination of the word sofar. No matter. A scribe is really only difficult to explain because the duty changed and evolved so much over the centuries. In David's and Solomon's day, literacy was a rare skill. Only a few could read and write, and this lack of literacy included most of the royal court. Reading and writing wasn't usually needed because most communications were done orally. Only in royal matters such as diplomatic treaties or in matters of commerce that involved accounting records did the written word matter all that much. 
It's actually only in the last 200 years or so in our time that the written word was considered more reliable than words handed down orally. In other words, the thought that words handed down orally have come to be considered anywhere from inferior to unreliable is recent. No doubt precision is better in the written word than in the spoken, but, but context and meaning is usually better preserved and thus superior in the spoken word over the written word. Only the most advanced and enlightened ancient societies wrote the laws of the kingdom down. <laughs> Even then almost almost no one could read them. So in a scribe uh, so a scribe rather in Solomon's era was a person who could read and write and the king needed some of those. And they needed to be loyal because very likely the king himself couldn't read or write or at least not very proficiently. So the king counted on those who wrote documents on his behalf and read diplomatic messages to him from other nations, well, that person had to be completely trustworthy. Otherwise, they could have told him anything, and he he would never have known the difference. Well, since scribes were literate, they also tended to be higher up on the social ladder and closer to the leadership. Usually, they were children of government officials, so they also assumed leadership responsibilities. They weren't mere court reporters or human dictaphone machines who were otherwise uninvolved with what they wrote. Thus, often, the higher officials in the royal courts were called scribes because the title set them apart by making it clear that they carried with them the admired and rare asset of literacy. But as the centuries rolled by and the written word and literacy became more desired and much more usual in the population, the office of scribe changed to being the royal recorder or the royal historian and the people who crafted the wording of treaties and law codes. Even later, scribes became teachers. In some cases, language interpreters and and the connection with them being either aristocrats or government leaders no longer necessarily applied. Therefore, the job and the meaning of scribe can only be spoken of according according to the biblical and historical era that they operated in. Well, back to our list. In verse 4, we're thrown a king-size curveball when we're told that both Zadok and Evyatar were Kohanim, high priests. Now recall that almost immediately after assuming office, Solomon deposed Evyatar and he banished him to his own land in the city of Anatoth. Now frankly, only speculation can be offered about this, this situation, but one thing is clear. There is no way that if Evyatar was considered a pariah, or his name would not have been included. This is probably a matter of respect and honor that he's listed. Likely, even though he was no longer part of Shlomo's inner circle, he still maintained a following of loyal supporters. He was considered a wise and learned and pious man, just more or less retired from official duties. Well, in verse 5, 
we have mention of Nathan, Nathan. My only comment here is that this is not David's prophet Nathan, but somebody else. Further, the Azar Yah, who is mentioned here in verse 5, is another and different Azar Yah than the one mentioned in verse 2, who's Solomon's right-hand man. This is a good time to explain that in ancient times as now, names tended to go in cycles. They'd become popular. Lots of parents would name their children using those currently popular names. And a little while later, they'd fall out of favor and a whole new set of popular names would arise. See, this is why the Bible can become confusing as to names, because most of the time only a single name is given and the family name is left out. The name, the last name we're going to discuss because it's of special interest is Adinoram. And this is because he was in charge of the Mach, which is Hebrew for tribute. However, in this era, tribute tended to consist primarily of two things, field produce and human laborers. Now, at the beginning of Solomon's reign, forced labor were usually captured foreign slaves or at times Hebrews who were being punished. To be clear, Adinoram was not a tax collector. In many ways, what he was was a taskmaster of work crews. Now, such a thing was generally hateful to the Israelites. So not too many Israelites found themselves subject to this. But later on in Solomon's reign, as he, as he drew away from God and became more interested in established, establishing a legacy of infrastructure in Israel, he began to tax normal everyday Israelites by requiring that they show up for forced labor to build Solomon's grand building projects. We'll move to the next list of people contained in chapter 4 next week. And this list has considerably more significance to it than meets the eye.